0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's Access Media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Well, no mai toti mai to mahika narrators, a program that brings researchers, policy makers, and those elbow deep in their practice together. To discuss all areas related to, impacting on, and providing services to Mahikakai. Welcome to Mahikakai Narratives with Dion Payne. Kia ora koutou. Welcome back to Mahikakai Narratives with Dion Payne. My coordinator today is with Tim Stevenson, who is Cree and Ojibwe from the Penguins First Nation, and his family is from Fox Lake, Manitoba. Although he is currently located in New South Wales, Australia. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm already recording, if that's okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because it really is just a relaxed conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, I appreciate it. I mean, it's. I mean, I loved having you guys over for the conference. So, mm-hmm. you know, the mahi, the work that you guys are doing is really, really good.
1: Um, as you know, we moved out to Double um, A and um
0: Uh, how far away from sydney are you
1: from sydney i think about five hours
0: north south
1: Uh, (laughs) southeast
0: southeast yeah wow
1: yeah we're in a region called the central west okay so if you look at i guess the mountains the blue mountains were on the east side of the mountains um yeah not quite the outback but the agricultural area. There's been lots of agricultural here, okay. Um, cattle and all that sort of stuff. So, and interesting, like mining and different things like that. So,
0: yeah. Oh, okay. So, what work are you doing at the moment, Tim?
1: I guess in the region, I'm I'm in charge of, a, not in charge, but like I look after, I think, 25 communities doing community economic development work so it's been quite (laughs) busy and stuff so yeah but you know just taking the time to get to know them hear their story where they want to be and stuff and you know share some of my experiences with them as well so Mm. so
0: you said you work with 25 different communities
1: 25 different more than that I guess if you want to really get detailed but in my patch, there's 25 communities um, that I work with. Um, been recently heading out towards the outback in Broken Hill, um, which is another region, but I've been helping out with a project over there on goat farming. Wow. So they've just been, I guess, a few, few, few years back, they've been giving back some of their land, and it includes an old station. So I think it's about 32, 30 Thousand hectares that they have, and there there used to be a goat. Um, I guess they just muster up goats and stuff, and um, um, sell them off, uh, which is good. It's like two hundred bucks a head for goats. Um, so right now they are they were doing it in partnership with another um, company, but they want to do it for themselves. So I've just been helping them with um, this that business set up. Um, startup costs new fencing and everything else like that um, what they need to do so um, yeah um, what essentially what our program is is that we have funding available for business development and early st- and early stage I guess investment um, in terms of startups and stuff so um, been really sort of getting a sense of uh, I don't know raising stability I guess or trying to, in a sense, with the communities. So is it Aboriginal communities?
0: Or just? Yeah,
1: it's all, all Aboriginal communities I work with. And part of, I think, my role, I think just in general, a role of Indigenous people worldwide is making external stakeholders more accountable mm. um, versus checking lists, but actually getting, getting them to do more. And that's somewhat of the difficult part as well. Um, But, you know, there's opportunities to do that and we're willing to partner, you know, willing to work together. Um, It's just sometimes it seems so hard for not, I don't know, for whatever reason, um, expand their thinking or different things like that, you know, Um, but yeah, um, there's a lot of interest in cafe startup here okay. um yeah one of the um communities that i'm working with is looking to start up a cafe and they're um and they want to sell they have there's a um produce i guess what do you think? a manufacturer of um he produces um a lot of bush tucker type of food um not like granola bars and stuff, yogurts and different things like that like Mixed with, I guess, indigenous food ingredients, um, but his success, his big success, came when he got a contract working with Qantas. So he was able to have his food be part of the snacks at Qantas wow. um, on the flights. So we've they've engaged him in providing some of those uh, that food there um, for purchase, and yeah, so yeah, it's. You know, kicking along. Um, I just got in touch with another community way up north towards Queensland. Um, they want to do a sort of a fine dining cafe wow. and stuff. So yeah, it's it's happening.
0: <laughs> that's an interesting marriage between sort of when you're saying like bush tucker, which is kind of mm-hmm. like traditional food, but in a modern context, I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. And I think really Like, I don't know. It's hard in terms of getting people interested in traditional food
0: Mm.
1: and food practices. Because it's, to me, it's bland. It's hard work and things like that, right? But I think some of the uh, new generations or people are thinking differently around how do you... How do you incorporate traditional ingredients into, I guess, modern types of food that are easy to access and people might want to pick them up or something, right? Um, mm. yeah. Um, yeah,
0: I think that's inter- I, mean, I think that's a really interesting statement because I, I I do think you're right actually around getting people interested in traditional foods and traditional food practices because it's it is more labor intensive mm-hmm. Eggs- that food to come through yeah what do you think we have to do to change that especially with our young people uh,
1: make i don't know <laughs> well it's interesting because i was just think some conversations last week and so one of the programs we also have is the fishing fund where we support um fishing businesses and entrepreneurs and um one of the communities i was working with put up an application last year and it's run like it's been run in partnership with um, a government agency, but we just sort of administer it, administer it right? Um, but one of the things that was really important for the community that I was working with at the, at the time was cultural mentoring um, in terms of that particular fishing business that they wanted to do, like not only alongside Western ways and certifications and things like that, that you need for um, harvesting. Um, fish but also having the old fellas around um to show and to mentor some of the young kids in terms of those cultural practices it may not be they're gonna go out free diving for abalone or something like that you know but they could share the stories and references to that activity and how i guess what was done and then you know um use that or share those stories with those young people and then just I don't know I think encourage um, encourage them to learn more um, but also you know be able to alongside of that make that money through that job of fishing with those accreditations that you need um, in order to sell and stuff Um, but the government did not want to see that as training it's like they don't value indigenous knowledge the same as in our Western ways, like um, trade knowledge and things like that, which is like, it happens in Canada as well. And it's like, and I think in the the research sphere, it's like, how do you value indigenous knowledge? You know? Um, And it's, for me, I struggle with it because I was writing a paper on traditional food, I guess, policy and access, that sort of stuff um, before, and I was utilizing a lot of knowledge that I got from attending ceremony, att- spending time on the land, spending time with elders, um, and doing all of that work and sort of getting sort of the rights of, of passage to be in these certain spaces to learn more about it, right? And so I was sharing this in my paper, but then my advisor that I was writing with was like asking me to cite, look at books and different things like that. And I'm like, but I didn't learn it that way. Mm. I didn't learn that information that way that I'm sharing with you in this paper. I learned it being out there and spending time. Um, and then she didn't accept my writing. And I'm like, this is dumb. For me, it's dumb and stupid. Yeah. And I was really pissed, um, yeah. but it's the situation, it's the world that we're into. Um, society does not value indigenous knowledge as it does, um, I guess, proper research methods, um, but.
0: I guess I see their, their way of transmitting knowledge in that very Western style as the only acceptable method, which mm-hmm. then totally negates like hundreds and thousands of years of traditional knowing mm-hmm. and practice. And it is very frustrating to come up against that. So I, yep. I was I was in that space a few years ago and I was, you know, mm-hmm. you, you just don't know why you do it. <laughs> I mean, you do yeah. it, but there's a part yeah. of you that's just like, why am I fighting this yeah. all the time? Yeah. So yeah. I would imagine then at the governmental level where you're trying to encourage that amongst the communities mm-hmm. to then have that, but not being taken seriously um, yeah. can be also another layer of frustration that sits outside the cat like the academic sphere
1: yeah facing yeah. that
0: do you face a lot of it in the community or or when you're trying to engage government services to provide support to the community do you see a similar sort of thing happening there as well <laughs> i'm reminded
1: <laughs> no well actually i'm reminded it's a positive story this time but i'm oh, good, reminded good, good of a time where we're working on this northern healthy food initiative project and we were funded by the government to do it um, and worked with the communities under this project um, but they and so it was up for renew um, evaluation and renewal so they did their evaluation of it and um, engaged a lot of the stakeholders um, and at that time there was a lot of discussion and talk about food sovereignty and what that means to a community and what that is Um, and I was asked to write the mission and vision statement based on conversations that we've had with indigenous communities and at stakeholder tables Um, and (laughs) I was trying to write a vision and mission statement based on food sovereignty and those principles without actually actually using those terms Mm -hmm. Um, and I got around it by sort of having those explanations or those those value statements of what food sovereignty is and it got accepted. Um, so with the happiness of the communities and sort of their right to choose mm. how they access food um, was accepted. And so the program got renewed and funding came to support a lot of those cultural activities as well um in the communities that was needed so that was sort of good and in terms of here i think it's a lot of like we're almost seen as government like the work that we do because we work with the aboriginal land rights act and um i think it's sort of kind of a lot of our work is how do you How do you activate land um, to develop it for, I guess, the betterment of community utilizing cultural values and foundations when government does not really see? And it's a struggle. Like just a couple of days ago, I was in a meeting, another meeting, um, and we're talking about because land at the Aboriginal community is public, in a sense, public land. It doesn't belong to one family, mm. one person. It belongs to the community of that Aboriginal community. But they're expected to manage it in terms of keep it safe, um, keep it, like, maintain, your, maintain the area from bushfires and different things like that, right? Um, and just look after it. But they're not given, actually, the resources to do that. Whereas you see government councils or I guess councils in the area local, local councils that do are able to access resources to maintain their public lands and stuff right so it's not we're expected to do so much more with way little money and mm. way little access to money and I think that is sort of an issue but um, you know for real like I what I've observed um, in Australia from being here for a little while um is that resurgence of cultural values and cultural practice um i've witnessed it back home in canada um in the 80s 90s participated in it see i guess witnessed the value of it in the work that's being done today and how it's used and within everyday frameworks, like for instance, um, like bringing ceremony into the projects that you do, acknowledging that, acknowledging, you know, those cultural practices in the work that you do in a sense that um, um, everything we do is for a reason, everything we do is for the, you know, forward generations and things like that. I do see a resurgence here. It's kind of like they're a decade behind in terms of what they want to do and but I see it rising and I do see a positive future in terms of utilization of cultural values and a lot of the things that they do um, and it takes a lot of time for them to come out of the haze of stolen generations of past policies and just acknowledging the past and moving forward right mm-hmm. um, and grasping seeking out some of those uh, those those little stories and things um, yeah so
0: so I so just coming back to ceremony because I was really fascinated we've spoken previously or I was listening to you talking previously about the Sundance ceremony mm-hmm. yeah what so can you remind me again what that what that ceremony is for. I was intense. just
1: actually thinking, I was, so I, I flew to Sydney like on Monday, I think it was, yeah. but on my way there, I was like thinking about being at the tree and getting fanned down by the healers and stuff and how, you know, I I missed it and I need, mm. I probably need to do some healing, you know, yeah. um, some spiritual healing in a sense here. I'm just being away for so long, um, (laughs) COVID, Um, (laughs) but um, the Sundance ceremony is a ceremony where um, essentially we give of ourselves and the only way we do that is to sort of, um, we give of ourselves to help people through our prayers through and also in this particular lodge that i'm that i go to Two tucson's lodge it's a teaching lodge too so we learn it's like a school i don't know <laughs> old school school um, <laughs> i think of, we call that a
0: one not, so yeah i understand
1: <laughs> um in terms of you're there you're there to learn you're there to heal you're there you're there to learn how to help others um with the gifts that you carry um and quite often when we enter these lodges, um, we go without food and water. We have a feast a in the beginning, but we go without food and water, and we prepare ourselves because you just you can't just shut it off; otherwise, <laughs> you'll get sick. So, just like you, we start to wean ourselves and prepare our bodies for what they're going to go through, and um, um, and so we do that, and then we enter the lodge for four days. And all day, we we basically get up, start praying, start dancing. And uh, and the first few days, I think for us, the dancers that go there are about cleansing ourselves, getting rid of things that, you know, are not necessarily good, good for our bodies, the different types of food and stuff that we eat um things that that are just not good and all of that sort of comes out um we go through we sit in sweat lodges a lot um two times a day and for that cleansing as well and um by the third day we are we're there for the people the people that come to the ceremony for prayers and for healing, we're there because we're sort of we we have prepared ourselves to be I don't know holy or half spirit during that time, mm-hmm. and um, people come there and we we help them through the things that we're doing. Um, we go there carrying certain questions or certain prayers. And we we hold these things through prayer ties that are tied to the tree, and it, it essentially looks like a um, a skirt. The tree mm-hmm. is dressed up in all this cloth. Um, but that's where a lot of our prayers are, and um, we continually pray, focus on focus on our prayers, focus on what we're there for, and focus on the people that are coming. Um, and when we're not dancing, we're learning, um, reflecting on some of those visions that come through um, during that time. Um, on, the, on the top of the tree, there is a bundle that's filled with, I don't even know what it's filled with. Um, I know the bottom trunk, again, the, in the bottom part of the tree, we put a, um, I believe it's a moose heart. Okay. In the plains they would use a buffalo heart but because we're more we get a lot of our nourishment from the moose we put Mm. the moose down there and then there's other parts of that and that's tied up in a bundle way up there um and there's a real
0: strong strong connection to your traditional food source
1: yes yes and you know acknowledging those Spirits that mm. the spirit of the moose, the spirit of the bear, those medici- the, those things that bring us medicines, right? Um, there's a lot of, and also I guess the eagle and the thunderbirds and stuff, those ones that carry our messages and help with healing and different things like that. The songs that are sung are all about those spirits. And, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really taxing time, but at the same time, it's refreshing. It's hard. Um, as a helper, I started going to Sundance as a helper. So we learned to set up, how to set up the lodge, how to set up the sweat lodges, um, what to prepare for during the doctoring and the healing and the things that go on there. Um, how to use our medicines to help the dancers that are maybe, um, Sunburning and things like that like mm. they can't eat or anything but we're able to apply traditional medicines to them to help them make it a, somewhat a little bit easier but yeah. you're, literally, yeah, you're literally in the sun <laughs> all day um so there could be time for burning um during so, that time
0: so we're about so realizing that you're based in australia at the moment new south wales whereabouts <clears throat> are you from in your homeland so you're Cree in Ojibwe? yes yeah okay yeah. so where if we for us New Zealanders that don't know where those tribal lands are where would yeah. we where would we locate that
1: um, well, there's this place called turtle Island aka north America yeah i um my my, my homelands are in um my dad's family is is Ojibwe, mm. and my mom's family is Cree. And so basically, if you were to look at a map of North America, yeah. we are in the heart of North America in the center um, of it. Um, there's this place called Lake Winnipeg. So it's the 10th largest um, freshwater lake in the world, I believe. Wow. Um, and um, my family my families come from either side of, of that lake. so. Um, but there's this place nearby called Manitouabe, Bay, which kind of references what the province of Manitoba is named after. Um, there's a sacred site, not too far from where I was living in Winnipeg um, called the Manitowoc Bay, but that's where a lot of um, ceremonies and sacrifice would take place in terms of fasting and different things like that. Um, people would gather there and seek direction. Um, and give gives give their offerings there's mm. um a petroform site there um which is really interesting so many petroforms um but so many i think stories once you get to meet the people that sort of look after it
0: what's a um, petroform?
1: petroform is kind of like a rock formation oh okay um, yeah and so there's a whole bunch of petroforms and the energy that you could feel from that place is mm-hmm. really um really i guess reminds you of your connection to the air to the land to the space and to the people that've been there before you and mm-hmm. you know um yeah it's really it's really strong. Um, I always like going over there <laughs> yeah.
0: so yeah. moose was the main staple traditional food was that the the main protein, was it?
1: Most, yeah, most fish. um, I was just actually watching a video. My friends, my good friends come from this place called Mr. Powastic Cree Nation, which is around the middle of that big giant lake that I was referencing. And they were talking about, um, the old people there in that video were talking about that they were called the sturgeon people. So the fish, that sturgeon fish, that provided a lot of, um, I guess, nourishment for people. Um, and but what was and one of my friends, who's now the chief there, was referencing their connection to the lake and to the water, because mm-hmm. it spit form is part of their identity. And that lake is very unhealthy um, at mm-hmm. the moment with so much. Um, contamination going in from the city, from um, agricultural um, pesticides and different things like that. Um, So, and then, and, and so the water comes in from the bottom end, but from the top end, it's stopped by hydro dams. There's, I don't know, six hydro dams on that river towards it before it actually reaches the ocean so it's basically a big res- giant reservoir, and you know, they're in that video. They're referencing talking about the responsibility to look after the water, and you know how scientists say it's an unhealthy lake, it's dead, and stuff like that. But she was saying it was like, well, if that if that lake's dead, we're dead as a people, and you know, they have to work together to
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, be, let it be healthy again because um, essentially if, that, if they die or that lake dies, they die, right? It um, mm. comes with their, their identity and I think that was sort of a, a huge wake-up call for me like way back then when I was doing research in my own community and part of the questions was what kind of what blood do you have in you? What's your language? Um, basically, what, what kind of person are you, right? They didn't know who they were their families their parents didn't know who they were um it wasn't shared as much so it was really a big wake-up call into and a big fear for me is like i don't want our future generations not knowing who they are where they come from i was always taught that within my own family Mm. um but as a community i think after those that evidence that was provided through that project you know we really ramped up A lot of our cultural awareness and um, informing our younger generations about the history and who we are Um,
0: it's an interest it's a it's an interesting dilemma in that i think sometimes our culture is compartmentalized yeah for example we have a spiritual side we have our food side we have our land management side and I think you know in the past where all of that is very much intertwined and wrapped up together Uh as we've come further and further into the modern world we have been compartmentalized therefore our way has been Uh our way of being is compartmentalized (laughs) because that's we have water issues here as well so it's really interesting that as indigenous people you know we and just as much pain when our resources are polluted, and and it's interesting that we are often judged over that when we're not the ones that started it. Yeah, we have the control to end it, <laughs> in a sense mm-hmm. that we might say stop polluting our river or we don't want any more of that going in there. But what a corporation does is what a corporation does. Geno's. Do you know mm-hmm. Yeah, we tend to have to be continue to be the. Guardians and protectors of those resources, when we are so bombarded mm-hmm. by the externa- externalities of things that we have no control over, and it's yeah. I think it's because other people commodify our culture that we keeping mm-hmm. that together is a real yeah. challenge. And I think some of the one and another, some of the sort of youth activities that we do here, we we integrate the food so much to show that this is our culture, and mm-hmm. by doing this food we're starting to create uh, create a greater identity amongst ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're sort of in a whole nother space. It's, oh, that's just fishing. That's just hunting. But it's so Mm -hmm. much more than that. And I can see that in the way that you described the moose and and how Mm -hmm. the the different parts of the moose are used in that Sundance ceremony. Mm -hmm. It's so much more than an observationist might look at that and go, that's quaint. (laughs) <laughs> we're yeah. actually like no that's essential
1: <laughs> yeah. so it's, yeah. it's
0: how do we keep that, that together yeah. it's, it's a real struggle some days
1: it is yeah and some of the um, like I think at our feasts and things like that we try to incorporate a lot of the food from the land What and from my I guess experiences I used to go to feasts earlier on and then there's all these processed foods and stuff like that, right? And I'm, you know, think, like, do our ancestors know what this is and whatnot? Um, so I've always tried to keep a stash
0: <laughs>
1: of some form of um, traditional food from the land, right? Um, even when I'm feasting my spirit and when I put out these plates, I try to incorporate something that's from the land um, in those spirit dishes um and I, I think it's gaining momentum um in the community speak it's become sort of a standard um act when you're when you're preparing feasts for people that it does come or when you're preparing feasts um for whatever reason it is um for from the land um and it's quite interesting because like I'd just been involved in projects where traditional food was the main um, main um, subject. Mm. And so, but like I got a caterer one time, got all this food, like lots of it and then held a forum, opportunity community forum and nobody came in to eat. Like, there could have been something going on in the community, but nobody came to eat. We ended up packaging some of that food and taking it to the um, aged care center or something like that. Right. Um, But we had so much food um, and just nobody really came. Um, But um, and I think that's one of the unique things about some of these research projects or projects that you're a part of. Um, And I think the project that I referenced when I came to your your territory there mm. was around contamination in traditional foods, because they were seeing yeah. a lot, people the harvesters were seeing a lot of spots and didn't really trust the food. Um, mm. Because of people getting sicker, people not knowing how to look after the meat, look after the meat once they um, get it. Um, but through Western science, mm.
0: yeah. <laughs> we
1: were able to prove um, that, you know, it is safe. You just can't eat it all day, every day. Sure. You got go to you gotta go to different places. Use gotta that <laughs> you got
0: to cook a You yeah. got to cook a fish for... Yeah.
1: <laughs> go a little bit farther and different yeah. things like that. But we also, like, did random things as the 24-hour diet recall on young kids. Mm. What are the young kids eating? Ms. Junk, mm. you know? And you give that to... It showed us how they're eating too. They're eating alone, not necessarily with families and things like that. So we show that to the community leadership, and you know they change their ways um, through some of that information that we find, right? Um, and yeah, it's it's. I think that research aspect is is important, and it doesn't necessarily have to be formal research it Mm. could be when you're preparing your proposals or something um what is it what is it that community wants to do and then find out reasons why you want to do it like not just anecdotal reasons but with a little bit of data um Mm -hmm. always helps right um
0: well i think that's a great thing about having really good authentic indigenous research projects is that you actually are able to co-create that at the beginning and that Mm -hmm. the data and and the outcomes of that research actually help not criticize or condemn, you know, some, some research projects do that just to prove a point. But I think what we've seen is a lot of research that can be very helpful for Indigenous Mm -hmm. communities to find out the why, why is that happening
1: in this space? And I think
0: that's important
1: yeah and it you know it, I think too, as sort of allies to this whole thing of um food sovereignty and mm. the ideas behind it is that I, like allies as in organizations that are not necessarily in the community but helpers, like we need to show more support to those community champions, those people that are doing it out there and let them do their thing but also help them support support them in terms of how they do it and how they raise awareness in the community and i think that's an important part of i think the work that they were, and i wanted to for me in particular cultural food practices and mm. how we share them uh, within generations because we do know our old people are dying our knowledge is are dying, um, there's one project that I was involved with that they wanted to smoke some fish in one community. There is only a 90 year old lady who was sick in the community the community that knew how to do it, right? So we had to go to another community to find that knowledge and bring that person, mm. to come show people how to do it again, um, how to prepare that fish. But even like last year back home, power outages sure there is hunters out there that were hunting put food in freezers Mm. but everything got wrecked because the power got cut off Mm. you know um we're not doing anything like canning fish smoking like preserving our food right in the traditional way Mm. um and we didn't we weren't what is it called i think the term is um we didn't have what what is it, the greedy boxes the freezers and stuff where you could just fill them up and you know we were out on the land all the time we had those seasonal activities and we didn't we only took what we needed and not what yeah. we wanted right so there was
0: i think covid taught us a good lesson as well around mm-hmm. What we're doing with regard to collecting, harvesting, growing food—if um, mm-hmm. if our grocery lines were anything like your your guys over in Australia—we um, it's funny you talk about bottling or canning. We went straight into bottling. <laughs>
1: so yeah.
0: we had quite a few fruit trees in
1: yeah.
0: in Coquardata, and we just got we just jumped in the in the truck and then just went and got a whole bunch of pears, a whole mm. bunch of peaches. And then just started bottling them all. (laughs) And I think there was just a natural reaction to how do we start collecting food and preserving food and, you know, because we didn't know how long the lockdown would last for. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the end, it wasn't as long as we thought, but it it shocked us back into, well, we have to think about that. (laughs) You know, the shop is not always going to be open. Yeah.
1: And it takes, you know, it takes a little I will agree to do all that stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but the people that do it will be the ones sort of expected to share that. Yeah. When those things do happen, right?
0: We have a saying about that. <laughs> there's very few that do the work, but there's a lot that turn up for the harvest. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But that's even with like, when I used to harvest um, medicines and plants and things, right? Mm. Like, it was hard work Yeah. going out there and, you know, learning, learning about the identification, yes. how to prepare it and stuff. And then people come along, oh, I need some of this. And <laughs> you can't just say no, right? Oh.
0: oh, it's literally just finished cooking and it's gone.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... And then it's, yeah. And then, you know, at, at times, you know, you're given these medicines for different reasons and mm. um, you share with them. I remember, I just recalling the last time I I was at home, which was for my grandfather's funeral. And I stopped in to my good friends at Mr. Powastic. Um, they gave me a bunch of fish and they gave me a bunch of um, moose meat for the, mm. for the feast. And then um, I was also given a bunch of... Um, to help um, with my emotions and different things like that. And then, um, and I was giving a, a lot of it. So I was like, oh great, I get to, get to take this back home um, to uh, Australia with me when I go back. But um, um, when I was in, during the time at, around that funeral time, the, um, my uncle, his friend was seeking some I guess medicine and support and stuff so I went to go sit with him mm. and just sort of hear him out and try help him that way and then ended up giving him what I was given that I was what I was going to take home so um, I was like things come to you for different reasons right, right. and stuff like that so I recognize that you know maybe he can use it yeah. right at that moment um, versus me hoarding it <laughs> yeah um, I
0: understand so, yeah, yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that you and I have a lot in common, it is really that revitalization of our cultural or traditional food practices. Mm-hmm. What's it been like as someone that's First Nation going mm-hmm. to Australia and working with Aboriginal communities or Indigenous communities there? Do you find it's an easy segue into that place or is it a, an adjustment? How, how do they find you coming into that space? hmm Easy or hard?
1: Have, I don't know. It's a little bit of both, I guess. Um, when I first was coming over here, I, was, I had a, um, I was working, I was doing, a, I guess I had a job as a consultant, I guess you could say, um, mm-hmm. for a Canadian foundation that wanted to do more um, Indigenous engagement. So I was providing some lessons around, I don't know, safe, cultural safe, awareness on engaging indigenous communities um, Mm -hmm. and different things like that. And I was referencing settlerism, all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, I couldn't deal with it because I'm like, here I am talking to a group of people that come onto somebody else's territory and want to do things and maybe their way because that's all they know. And here I was sitting here, you know, like freaking out. How do I maintain my indigeneity
0: mm.
1: on a land that's not, I don't know anything about this, this land. I know it has snakes and spiders. There's things, sure? things that can hurt you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um, Kangaroos and uh, crocodiles.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but really I, don't know. I think the the things that really connect me to the indigenous communities here um, is the, I guess, the commonalities of past policies Mm. of what settlers did to our, I guess, our regions, our territories, right? Um, And like, not only that, but also how we coped as a people. Um, the missionaries are people that come change our spirit in a sense. Um, and also I guess those coping methods, the drugs, the alcohol, the mm-hmm. abuse, like I'm sure like back home, people were physically assaulted, sexually assaulted mm-hmm. and all this stuff that happens to yep. you when you're taken away from your family. Um at a young age, um, I'm aware, aware of it. My grandparents got taken away to school. Mm-hmm. My parents got taken away to school. I know how they interact with me in terms mm-hmm. of, I don't know, controlling my behavior in a sense or showing me affection mm-hmm. um, and the ways that they've done it. I've worked with I want to say hundreds of people. One of my jobs was to hear residential school survivor stories. Wow. So hearing their whole life, oftentimes men, older men, my dad's age, telling me the first the first person to say or to tell about their sexual abuse, their abuse that they've encountered mm-hmm. and how they sort of coped. I was the first person that they've ever told like some of these mm. stories, right? So I'm fully aware of, I guess, sort of the impact that it has had, um, not only to them, to the people that have, that it has happened to, but to the intergenerational, their, their kids, their grandchildren, mm. um, and, you know, see it within my family. And so there, it was an... It was an easy connection, um, to relate to the people here. Sure. Sure. Um, and also I think a really easy connection to recognize our relationship to the land. Like they have a relationship to the land. They have stories, they have practices, they have relationship with the animals. Um, and those connections. Um, one of the things that I struggle with is, yes, I get the plight of indigenous communities, but I cannot insert myself and speak on behalf of them here. I could help, but mm-hmm. I need to allow that space for them to figure out too. I, I know culturally back home, personally back home, we have tribal territories I'm not going to go into a a Dakota territory and say, this is how you do stuff and blah, blah, blah. Right. I'm not going to go over here. I'm not going to be over here and say, this is how you do stuff. But one of the things that I did actually here was I shared some of our teachings. Um, one of the projects that I was on was about, um, this community center they had access and funding for a community center and there was a sort of disagreements with which person in the community or which group in the community would um administer it or something like that right so the government couldn't couldn't hand deal with it didn't know how to deal with it and stuff like that so they hired us to sort of Get, give them away our pathway mm-hmm. and stuff. So, but one of the things that I did was, and because I see the strength in cultural knowledges and things like that, was, you know, I just did a giant sharing circle and teaching about what I experienced, what I know about our cultural tools. And I took a braid of sweet crafts with me to sort of give them that sort of visualization and sort of give them shared those teachings of sweet crafts with them. And sort of reminded them of our, I think, of our respons- cultural responsibility. They have their own specific cultural responsibility, but I think generically it is the same, is mm. similar. Um, yeah, and they went. We went through a hard time, but then we were able to get through through a positive outcome and stuff. Mm. It took a while, well, but you know, I think it's it's creating and providing those safe spaces um, and also establishing that trust and stuff. So I think a lot of my experiences in Canada um, are accepted here Mm. because they do see some of the work that's being done in Canada and in the communities. And I can share some of that, but I I also can share um, some of the teachings and awareness that I know that help me um, in the work that I Mm. do. Um, or that I have done.
0: I think that is a beauty though. I mean, if I think about Maori here, First Nations and Turtle Island and our Aboriginal whanau in Australia is that there is this commonality of our colonial history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many shared experiences and I think maybe, and I don't know, but sometimes when we have such strong cultural values
1: that mm-hmm. are connected
0: to land and food and place, Um, there is a lot of sharing we can do amongst ourselves. Yeah. We we can learn from each other and also share with each other different ways that have worked for ourselves Mm -hmm. and then blend that sometimes with what they know how to do themselves. Yeah. It's it's important for our peoples to continue that that cultural exchange and knowledge transfer because, again, it kind of comes back to a point you were making before, is that although it's not always in the Western space accepted that our way of transmitting knowledge mm-hmm. is verbal, oral, you know, it's in music. So from yeah. for, for Maori it's in carvings and you know, mm-hmm. it's an art form, music, um, cultural expression through Kapahaka. Yeah. Outside of our spaces that'd be just like it's lovely. <laughs> But how yeah, do you re- yeah. how do you reference that? And I think yeah. for us, our referencing is all of our cultural iconography or our cultural art. And like you're saying, the the tetraforms where our mountains are personifications of mm-hmm. of our deities or our you know our ancestors. So
1: yeah.
0: there's so many things that we hold that is just naturally us. As Indigenous yeah. peoples, that is so so important, and I think that's why sometimes I get a little not worried, but you know, our 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 youth mm-hmm. move too far away from that, and then how yeah. do we kind of bring them back into that fold, like you were saying? If our kids yeah. are eating by themselves and eating junk food, how do we how do we yeah. change that? Yeah.
1: And that is in a community, by the way. (laughs) Like, you know, it's away from the fast food places, but they're still eating that junk, frozen meals, and things like that. Mm. Um, There's a lot of, I guess, um, opportunities and things in terms of land management work and, you know, providing that sort of cultural practice. Like, one of the big things here is. Because of the, dev- I guess, the, the impacts of the bushfires last year. Sure. Um, government has sort of listened um, to cultural burning practices, right? Mm. And how that has um, sort of, um, how they sort of see it as a way to prevent the devastation that has, similar devastation that has occurred um, <laughs> last year versus their their management um practices of the of the land and stuff like that (laughs) so but i think we're probably listening to different parts and pieces of indigenous value and Mm. impact it can have right um but i also think too like if one of the things in my job is that because we're acquiring land for the for the for the communities or they are we're helping them So we're helping them to develop it or do something with it, right? So um, one of the things that I often talk about with them is like, well, what do you want to use this land for? What are the things that you want to do? Like a lot of them think economic development, you got to do something that makes money or wreck the land and things like that. But a lot of them want to utilize, build, keeping places and are, share cultural awareness and stuff like that right and then and i think from that evolves a lot of other programs um Mm. harvesting programs maybe they could do more with um um helping their traditional food grow um looking after that um one of the other invasive species they have here is carp (laughs) and stuff like that. so i was like we have a fishing fund. We could support a business that maybe gathers up the carp and makes fertilizer to put on the land. You know, like mm. so many opportunities and different sure. things like that. Very right? organic,
0: very sustainable.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. not
0: fertilizer. I mean, it's not like uh, artificial fertilizers and stuff. So, yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm.
1: And and yeah, so like just different no ways of sort of how do we look after the land that we're at how do we mm. maybe include some of those cultural practices um and it's harder work but i mean like it's labor but anyhow i really enjoyed this conversation no
0: absolutely hey thank you so much for being available i love it mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's this is good. been great yeah. So
0: we'll catch up again when it's not about an interview
1: <laughs> yeah I'm thinking solutions
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely we
1: solutions <laughs> we
0: That'll will find a way
1: <laughs> yes all right
0: okay yeah, Tim thank you be thank young. you See bye young.